Kevin. Nash, hey, um, yeah, why did you go out there and help Big Papa Pump? And you are who? I'm Pamela Paulshock, the new interviewer at WCW. So, so answer the question. <laughs> Could you answer a question, please? Welcome to Keep It 2000, a joke that turned into a wrestling podcast that has revealed itself to be a psychological experiment. Uh, I am Brian Mann, and joining me is my fellow test subject, Nate Milton. Nate, we are on episode 21. This show is old enough to drink. I am very happy for that because I've got to tell you, I am, I am just fucking beat tonight. I literally was watching this terrible episode of Nitro on the train this show is interfering with our lives. <laughs> well, I- I'm glad that you finally caught up with me, brother man, because I have been drinking since episode one of the universe's favorite interracial, cross-generational pop culture podcast devoted to the genius of one Vincent James Russo. And uh, let me tell you, Brian, it uh, a little bit of liquor goes a long way towards deciphering what we watch week to week on this here program. Nate, if I can tell you where I'm at right now, I'm actually not drinking liquor. I'm not even kidding you. I have 48 ounces of cold brew coffee sitting next to me here. (laughs) I came straight from work to here. It was a long fucking day. It's been weeks of long days uh, for me because, Nate, I guess the last time we talked, uh, I had just started working at MSNBC, right? Yeah. Well, uh, I quit on the third day of that job. <laughs> Didn't like that. And um, so, so I guess uh, Rachel Maddow coming up to the satellite, that's a no-go then. That's not going to be happening. We have a different Rachel with us today. Instead, uh, I'm now writing on the new reboot of TRL. And the reason why I bring this huh. up, guys, is because it's going to be uh, premiering on actually the Monday after this episode drops. So, guys, go ahead and watch that. And if that shows a success... Maybe I can stop doing this shit, Nate. <laughs> See now, now may, maybe you have. Maybe this will give us. Uh, you know, since the Rachel Maddow path is is now blocked, maybe working with MTV that'll give us a route to Ricky Rackman. Maybe fingers crossed. <laughs> but hey, listen, we're talking way too much about ourselves. Let's go ahead and bring in our fellow test subject because thankfully, it's not just you and I alone. Some talking about this terrible episode of pro wrestling programming. She is the host of Dark Five on the mega-popular Snarled YouTube channel. Rachel Evans is with us this week. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, I think, for having me. (laughs) You made me watch this show. Oh, my God, this episode. But thank you. I'm really glad to be speaking with some other humans about it because I watched it, and then I watched, like, four after it, and I've been wanting to talk about it, and nobody (laughs) (laughs) It's a traumatic experience. I kind of think this show is a... I mean, 
I would say the show is a support group, but we also are the abusers that inflict this on our guests. So I don't really know. Uh... In a way, this show is bringing us together, though, Brian. Like in these turbulent times in which we live, we need something that we can all cling on to as human beings. And I think if we can all coalesce around WCW Monday Nitro in the year 2000, the world will be a better place. You know, I was watching this episode and thinking like, well, you know, at least I'm a woman in 2017 and I'm allowed to speak. That's Ah, cool. (laughs) That's true. That is not something afforded to women on this program. No. Rachel, I'm I'm curious. You said you watched some more after this. What were your pro wrestling viewing habits in the year 2000? I mean, what are your viewing habits now? And what were they in the year 2000? Were you a WCW fan? No, no, I was too young. I, um, I, what year 2000? I was eight. So, so I was watching, yeah, I was watching, um, WWE with my dad. I've been watching my entire life. Um, I grew up like on stone cold and that era of WWE and I watched my entire life. And then, um, in the more recent years, uh, ever since I moved to LA about four years ago, I got into PWG and then I started to get through that into like ROH and TNA and, um, I do. And now I currently do the after show for Lucha Underground. So I'm, uh, I, yeah, so I'm I'm kind of all over the place with wrestling right now. So were you at any point interested in WCW? Did, did you ever curiously peer, like, peer over the fence? What were you thinking about WCW when it was the competition when you were a kid? Sure, yeah. I mean, I always thought I wasn't allowed to watch it. I mean, I, in the more, in more recent years, I've watched a lot of it because it's a lot of fun. But especially I think the way earlier stuff is more palatable for me. But um, mm-hmm. the, um, back when it was like the big competition, it, all, it felt like the mean older brother that I wasn't allowed to hang out with. Um, the crowds were much rowdier. It was a lot bloodier. And I, well, I mean, for a time it was. And then, uh, yeah, I think my dad never watched it. So I was just like, yeah, it's not cool. And then I looking back, I. I see what I've been missing. <laughs> so so while most kids were afraid of being caught smoking or drinking, you were afraid your parents would catch you watching WCW. <laughs> like your dad comes in your room, he's like, I it smells like WCW in this room, young lady. Yeah, absolutely. And he uh he would even it was so extreme that now I'm recognizing that it was extreme. But it was extreme that like when people would come over to the WWE or WWF, uh and I'm like, who is that? He's like, don't worry about it. Wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> that guy will never get over. <laughs> he's loyal. He's so loyal to Vince McMahon. And it's funny because he knows that he's Vince McMahon. And uh, he's still like, yeah, 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 that's the dude. He's the number one guy. And you hear all these like harrowing stories about it. And my dad's like, yeah, super cool. He's really in charge over there, huh? Real cool. <laughs> so so in your father's mind, Hulk Hogan just retired for seven years. He just took yeah. all this time off in the 90s. He just stopped existing. He just <laughs> didn't exist until until he existed again. And that's, you know, it's, a, it's an ideology that I admire of his. <laughs> and so, Rachel, we know exactly where you were in the year 2000. Let's go ahead and see where the pop culture world was at large. Uh, Nate, I was just looking at the Billboard charts it's safe to go in the pop waters once again. Maria Maria is done. We can move forward. Well, well, well I just want to tip the cap to one Carlos Santana and uh, the, the product. Is it the product B&G or C&B? I, I think you're right the first time. 
the product B&G, uh, who's basically just like a front group for Wyclef. Uh, so, yeah, uh, congratulations, Carlos Santana. Uh, you, you brought much joy to our hearts and, and taught us a little bit of Spanish that people mangled. Well, there is a new champ this month, and at the top of the charts, guys, the day of this episode of Nitro was I Try by Macy Gray. Oh, I have a very deep memory about this song. I am, um, I, oh no, I sang this in front of my whole school. <laughs> yeah, it was really bad. I, it was really embarrassing like unprompted i just kind of like went for it and um yeah i uh was i was a loser i don't know if that's coming across (laughs) (laughs) i related deeply to the song and it was just like on my you know it was on my cd player it was on my disc man and i had to just jam it out then I opened my eyes and looked around and everybody was just looking at me and not doing anything. Even my friends were like, <laughs> I don't know her. <laughs> it was hard. <sighs> but I tried, just like Macy Gray told me to. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. This was this, Brian, man. This is my wheelhouse now because this is a, a time in music where we're starting to get I don't know if you want to call it neo soul or new R and B or, or kind of you know this bohemian uh, soul or urban music as they would call it. Uh, but you know, yeah, people like Macy Gray, people like Lauren Hill, obviously, uh, India Ire, Jill Scott, and, and uh, um, damn, I'm blanking on my girl. Uh, I guess I'll see you next live time, Erica Badu. Like <laughs> yes, so yes. many great. Uh, R&B singers, particularly uh, when you talk about the women, that were doing something just a little bit different. You know, it wasn't your strict pop R&B or, or you know, your your more typical Motown sound. It, it was something different. And I remember Macy Gray certainly was different. Like, you know, she had the look uh, and then the big fro and then the voice. Like, the voice was, it was unpolished and it was unconventional, but it it worked for her. And I just remember, yes, very much, you know, I wasn't singing it in front of my high school class, but this certainly was like a go-to karaoke song. It's one of the few karaoke songs, I think, that sound better the worse your voice gets because you, you get that authenticity. And, yes, there were many times over uh, various uh, adult beverages where I, I tried to say goodbye, and I couldn't. I tried to walk away, and I stumbled, you Brian, man. I choked. No. It, it, I tried to hide it, but it's clear. My world crumbles with you. I'm not here. I had the feel. Oh, so many feels. My dad, like, loved this song when it came out. My dad had pretty much sworn off all modern music by the time uh, this rolled around. <laughs> but he, for some reason, fucking loved this this album. It wasn't The song is just, like, her in a park walking around. Like, like it's not yeah. a very special video, I don't think. Is Macy, <laughs> is she still making music, or did she, like, transition to just acting? No, she's so making I feel music. Like a, she just she is? Out with her. Come on, I think so. Okay, because I just feel like she shows up in like a Lee Daniels movie every once in a while. Yeah, I think they, like Macy and a lot of those other uh, artists that I mentioned, they 
there was kind of a, you know, much like the dot-com bubble burst. I think there was a burst on Neo Soul. There was a Neo Soul. Like, <laughs> there was a Neo Soul bubble that burst. And that's why, like, <laughs> Maxwell, who's one of my favorite artists of all time, like, Maxwell would mm-hmm. have a hot record, and then he would just disappear for, like, five years. And, and you're like, did, did Maxwell die? Or did, <laughs> did, he get, did he get out of the business? And then right when you're thinking he's gone, he comes back. He had a great album last year. Are we about to have another bubble, Nate? Are you are you warning us? Is he the canary in the coal mine? That's yeah, what I was yeah, about right. to say. Mason Gray <laughs> released an album last year too. Oh yep, no! So, so oh, no. I would say, yep. With next, uh, next year, by the time we get uh, to the end of this WCW experiment, uh, there there will be another drought, another uh, decline in 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 R and B and soul. Oh. Miguel better have that four hundred one k lined up because it might get <laughs> dry for him in a second. I hope he's investing. Yeah, we're gonna end up with uh, genuine and 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 childish Gambino selling subway ads just to just to make it through. As much as we can keep talking about this, unfortunately, we've got to transition. No, to no, let's let's, con- let's continue to talk about Macy Gray because that keeps us away from <laughs> Reed Flair. Yeah, that's so true. No, unfortunately, we do have to now talk about the May 22nd episode of Nitro. I think there's bad blood in the new blood. You're just a puppet for Vince and Eric. We're out of here. Screw you. Tonight, I'm going to kick Horace's ass. The show starts off with a look back at all the can-miss action from last week's Thunder. Uh, Long story short, Hulk Hogan forced himself on Tori Wilson. She liked it, and Ric Flair was beat up by Jeff Jarrett. The show proper begins with two limousines arriving outside the arena. Elizabeth, Jeff Jarrett, Vince Russo with the World Heavyweight title, and David Flair get out all dressed in black. The group is distraught and feigning that Ric Flair has died. Right off the top, this is our show-long storyline. We are going to have a a funeral for Ric Flair, and can I just say, I am so glad that Ric Flair is doing better than he was doing a couple weeks ago in light of this show we're we're discussing. Yeah, that was, you know, immediately one of the first things that popped into my mind, Brian. I'm like, you know what? Shout out to the uh, wrestling gods because, uh, yeah, this would have been a rough rough week on the satellite of hate. So we go in the <laughs> arena, and Tony welcomes us to Grand Rapids for tonight's Nitro, the second time Nitro has been in this city this year. The Cat makes his way out for tonight's opening match. He will be having a weapons match with Booker T. The Cat gets the early advantage with a pair of nunchucks that break as soon as he tries to swing them around. These two brawl around the ring with the Cat uh, hitting Booker with a fan's beer. On commentary, Madden explains that Ernest Miller... And Bischoff are tight because the cat is training Eric's son, Garrett. Nate, this certainly made Ernest Miller a heel in my book. This might have been my favorite part of this match, Brian, man, because it it brought back so many memories of TNA. So uh, shout out to the magic man, Garrett Bischoff, formerly of Aces and Eights, because, uh, (laughs) yeah, that, that might have been the best part of this match, seeing where this particular show lined up on the Garrett Bischoff timeline. So not even, the, not even the match itself, just like the timeliness of it. You enjoy just just the name check. That, that's that was the best part of this match for me. Yeah. <laughs> the cat then misses a shot, and Booker hits a bookend. Booker reverses a whip off the rope and lands a sidekick. Sean Stasiak then runs down, and he attacks Booker. The cat grabs a chair while Booker takes care of Stasiak with a scissors kick. Booker gets the chair and hits Sean with it, but then the cat does a cartwheel kick, sending the chair into Booker's face, allowing Ernest Miller to pin Booker for a win. But 
Who the fuck cares? The segment wasn't over. Uh, but let's take a pause to discuss this awful match. This is the Vince Russo staple where it doesn't fucking matter who wins. It's just we brawled a little bit. A pinfall happened, but then this segment kept going. I, I fucking hated this. But on a plus side, this was better than the weapons matches we've seen previous weeks, if that's worth anything. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I I enjoy anything uh, where Booker T gets beat up. Um, so that was fun for me. But I have a very personal vendetta against Booker. I have a yeah. Ooh. Yeah. Oh, Why is that? I, I very I oh jeez. So I used to be I used to be a boxer. I used to be a Golden Gloves boxer, and I fought in the in the Golden Gloves. Of my last one ever, I fought somebody from his fight club and she played so dirty. She hit me in the back of the head like a bunch of times Ooh. and two people from his gym were on the judges panel and they, nobody called it. Oh, oh. Yeah. So Ooh. any, I have, I'm so tainted. So anytime I watch him, I'm just like, oh, I hate you. I know you don't <laughs> do this, but. <laughs> we're spilling the Booker T on this one. Oh. <laughs> and that's why you write for TRL. <laughs> Brian, man, there were only three good points to this entire matchup. Number one is the aforementioned Garrett Bischoff name drop. Number two, the damn cartwheel kick that finished the match. Yes, the (laughs) second time he's done that this year. He's a big fan of this move, guys. The cartwheel kick into the steel chair. That was pretty creative. But three... You know, people are always looking for, like, the next big superhero and, and who can, you know, be a convincing Batman because I guess people are sour on Ben Affleck now. Ernest the Cat Miller showed some moves, Brian, man. I think uh, his calling is in Hollywood. I mean, he he had his big screen debut in The Wrestler, and it didn't really go anywhere, unfortunately. Well, yeah, I, I, he was a victim of the Ernest the Cat Miller movie bubble. It, it, it happened <laughs> once, and then the, the bubble burst. After the match, Sean and Ernest beat down on Booker before the MIA runs down to the ring and makes the save. The Misfits take turns splashing Sean in the corner while the announcers joke about Major Gun's butt. Bucket! Bring up the rear! It's Major Gun! She sure is bringing up the rear! Excuse me? Bischoff music plays and out comes Easy e with Kimberly. The crowd chants asshole as Bischoff says he had business to take care of in California last week, but now he's just one call away from changing the face of WCW forever. Eric extends an olive branch and offers the MIA an opportunity to join the new blood. The MIA huddles up, talks amongst themselves before telling Eric to kiss their asses. To make the pop even cheaper, Major Guns then pulls down her pants, revealing her thong. What can I say? I mean, at least they're giving the mid-card something to do here. (laughs) Again, glass half full here. Yeah. I I was so distracted by how, like, Oh God, I'm, I know I'm going to be that person. Just like, I can't watch the women. I like, yeah. I'm looking at their eyes and they're so dead and I'm trying, I'm trying to see something like give them something to do. It's just so hard to watch. It just makes me so uh, thankful for where we are now in the WWE. <laughs> Though I do think major guns mooning the crowd was a pretty, that was a pretty uh, accurate trigger warning to let you know where how women were going to be treated the rest of this episode. This might have been the high point for female talent on this show. I, honestly, you're right. You're so right. And that it was just the first moment where I was like, huh, interesting. <laughs> and then the rest of the night, I was like, oh, no. Oh, no. Oh, they don't like them at all. <laughs> I, 
I think I'm coming to a bit of a realization here, Brian. You know, a few weeks back, we talked about, you know, certain groups that we remember liking, and, and the Misfits in Action were one of the groups I remember liking. But after a couple weeks of this, I think the thing I liked about MIA was the was some of the individuals, you know, Lash LaRue, Chavo Guerrero, uh, Booker T here to come. But the the whole is really less than the sum of his parts when, when it comes to this group because week after week I'm I'm not uh, I'm not thrilled by the comedy segments that they're, they're put in. Um, I do appreciate their gimmick. Like I enjoy their aesthetic. I like what they bring when they come as a group. But like I agree, it nothing feels impactful. Like nothing feels like uh, it, it's better because they're together. Well, I think this is a big problem with Russo when he comes up with these crazy groups. Is that he has these big, colorful groups, but then he doesn't really give them anything to do. Like, I, w- I think just an actual maybe on-location vignette of these guys in boot camp or giving them a match. But they're these big, colorful personalities, and it just – everyone in the group just feels like they're overlapping each other. Like, I, I don't know. Like, I just I, – I don't feel like I have a good enough hold of who all these people's personalities are, and they're so larger than life mm. that it just comes across as messy. Also, do we need two majors? <laughs> we've got major stash and major guns that's true yeah well do you know do you know this the story about uh stash no so stash was originally called private stash sort of like a, a weed joke <laughs> but he was upset that private was such a low-ranking military officer that he demanded to be upgraded to major are you serious wow. oh come on van hammer wow <laughs> why okay hey He's not Petty Officer Stash. I mean, Private's still pretty good. <laughs> Private's pretty low-ranking, though. I mean, I kind of understand. But could you – I mean, there has to be an adjacent one that wasn't just the same exact thing. And, and she can't be Private Guns because the guns are the most public they thing They are about not it. private. Yeah. <laughs> Outside the arena, Hulk Hogan, Sting, Total Package, and DDP arrive in the same carpool. Hogan says that Nash is late, then Sting jokes that this is Nash's gimmick. So even Nash's stable mates all think he's a fucking prick. Oh, real real quick though, Brian, this this might have been my favorite uh, moment of the show, which uh, should give the listeners an idea of my overall thoughts about this episode. But uh, not only did we have Sting uh, say, "Hey, that that's his gimmick, guys," but as they were fading to black, he repeated it again, "Yeah, that's his gizimic." Gizimic. <laughs> He is a 41-year-old man, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Looks like Nash is late again. That's his gimmick. That's his gizimic. So they carpooled. Do you think they took a car together from the hotel? Do you think they all called an Uber pool and Hogan just happened to be their driver? Did Sting put the makeup on at the hotel? And uh, There's a lot of questions about these guys arriving what, together in the same what car. What happened to the, the, the big RV they had a couple episodes ago where they all came in? That's the thing. They're being driven around. Now they're fucking driving themselves. Hold on. I can't stop laughing about Hogan being an Uber pool driver. (laughs) (laughs) I love that imagery. Yeah, that's the one I'm going to go for. I'm going to decide that that's what they meant. (laughs) Yeah, let's let's just say he's a – Hogan is a very selective uh, Uber pool driver knowing his current history. (laughs) Sorry, brother. Not tall tall enough. (laughs) I think Hogan being an Uber driver is the only way he could get five stars. (laughs) (laughs) so we come back from the break to find eric talking with the mia backstage bischoff fires booker t and says that he has plans for the other misfits 
this action might have actually meant something if Bischoff hadn't fired the MIA three weeks ago before rehiring them with new gimmicks five days later. How am I supposed to take this? We fucking saw this three weeks ago, Nate. Yeah, I mean, besides this probably being Rachel's favorite moment of the show, mm-hmm. uh, it, 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 like, I didn't even believe it. Like, not, like, I've forgotten what happens next week, but even in the moment, I didn't believe this. So, yeah, uh, I usually love Bischoff's performance on these shows, but uh, this week he was a little off to me. Also, if I'm Booker T, getting fired from WCW in the summer of 2000 might be the best thing for your career possible. <laughs> There's someone across the street doing some pretty good hiring at the time. Elsewhere, David Flair, Jeff Jarrett, and Vince Russo stand around a casket containing one of Ric Flair's robes and a large fake nose. Russo fakes grief while the others comfort him. Vincent goes over to Daphne and Crowbar, who are fighting over the cruiserweight title. Russo tells them to go to the ring and settle it there. Russo returns to mourning the nature boy as Shivani says, The burial of Ric Flair is underway. (laughs) So yeah, I thought... Nate, this kind of goes into what we were talking about on the last episode with Nick. Russo's really good in these segments, but Russo's not the one facing Ric Flair at the pay-per-view. It's David Flair who's fucking sitting around with a, this fuck, fucking tucked-in black t-shirt looking like a fucking idiot <laughs> in the background. Yeah, in, in, in a better WCW, in a let, let's say, uh, you know, again, going back to my CW superhero references, in, in a Flashpoint timeline where... Uh, you know, Barry Allen saves his mom and Vince Russo never becomes a writer, but he becomes a really good performer and an actor. Like the Vince Russo character works on this show. And, and I like so much of what the character does and the, and the performance that he brings. But it's a it's too much, uh, too much Russo uh, on these shows. And B, you're right. The the heat is always on Russo and and. David Flair's not great. Like, we, we've talked about David Flair week to week on this program. But if you're trying to build up this kid, if you're trying to make him credible uh, or at least, you know, somewhat believable in this role, I feel Russo should have given him more. You know, and unfortunately, every time we see Russo and, and David out there, David's the one that's getting overshadowed. Like, David certainly has his weaknesses, but personality hasn't necessarily been one of them. Like, he did the crazy gimmick. He can go over the top really well, and I bet he could have done, like, an over-the-top mourning of his father in this segment. And we could have made it about him and put the focus on him rather than Russo. Yeah, I think they just mismanaged it because, like, you're right, Russo's really good. I think he's he's super strong on the mic, and he's really convincing, and I actually really enjoyed him this entire time. And I think that they were so excited about that that they were trying to make they were trying to make flair look like a i i mean it seemed like to me they're trying to make him look like a big bad guy but he's just not so you have to let him speak because his body's not going to do it for him you know so i yeah i it's kind of like the exact opposite of what they did with charlotte (laughs) they're like she's the strongest she's the superstar dana you can be her side something we then cut to the back where Terry Taylor is arriving with Ric Flair's 12-year-old son, Reed. Back at the announcer's booth, Mark Madden is playing up his new blood gimmick by fake crying over the loss of Ric Flair. We are then shown footage of a Terry Funk press conference where he promises a major announcement later in the show. <laughs> Who do you think the media outlets were at this press conference? There was so many people here. This was a lot like that that Sid Vicious press conference. Yes. How many <laughs> There was, what, like 20 people were at this Terry Funk press conference earlier in the day in Grand Rapids, Michigan? 
that's press conference central, didn't you know? That's where I do all my press conferences. <laughs> Uh, I just wanted more questions. Like, I needed more questions. Like, uh, you know, just somebody, uh, Mr. Funk, Mr. Funk, can you remember your time, please? Like, I needed more interaction from the, uh, from the press. Yeah, just a lot of arm waving. One half of the Cruiserweight champions, Daphne, comes down to the ring, punching a Ric Flair brawling buddy. She gets on the mic and says that Crowbar is acting like a big baby. She says that it's obvious she's the Cruiserweight champion since she's the one who got the pin last week. Crowbar comes out. And these two do a tug of war for the belts. They then thumb wrestle and then do a round of rock, paper, scissors. Yes, this is a match for the Cruiserweight Championship, ladies and gentlemen. How long before we get this on 205 Live? I mean, to be fair, I'd much rather see Enzo and Neville engage in a game of Rochambeau than actually wrestle. <laughs> yeah, fair. Miss Hancock then appears on the ramp taking notes as she always does. This has not paid off in any way yet. Crowbar puts Daphne on the top turnbuckle, teases a Hurricane Rana, but decides against it. Daphne then grabs Crowbar's underwear and gives him a wedgie. Guy, Crowbar hits a snapmare and then hits a slingshot splash. Crowbar shows remorse and picks up Daphne. However, Chris Candido and Tammy then run down and attack Crowbar. Daphne then charges Tammy and a catfight ensues. Meanwhile, Crowbar hits a German suplex on Candido. Tammy goes to hit Daphne with a chair, but Crowbar takes the chair away from her, allowing Candido to hit a missile dropkick to the chair to Crowbar's face. Candido follows up with a sit-down pile driver onto the chair. Daphne goes to revive Crowbar, and by mistake, she pins him. One, two, three. Daphne wins the Cruiserweight Championship. And I'll say it, Nate, this is worse than Oklahoma. <laughs> oh, I, I think there there might have been a way, and, and obviously, I always try to find the positive in this thing, Brian. I always want to look on the bright side, and I think there may have been a way to do all of this foolishness that we watched, but have it make some sense and have it have some impact. You know, like Rachel was talking about earlier, if instead of the you know Daphne accidentally pinning Crowbar. If you had Candido force her to pin Crowbar, because then he can see that as easy pickings for him to get the Cruiserweight title. And we've got a story going forward out of that. But this, you know, she shows the concern. And then all of a sudden, the next minute, she's happy. And I get that, you know, she's supposed to be crazy and wacky. But the the payoff to this entire segment was that there was no payoff. You know, it was very unsatisfying. And even, even the Candido thing that I suggested, it wouldn't have been great. But at least it would have been something. Yeah, it would have been it would have been a literal accident. Like this whole thing was just an actual accident and it felt that way. <laughs> and the crazy thing is that so many angles we're seeing here in WCW were either done before or even a little after, to be fair, in WWF, but done competently. Like this is mm-hmm. exactly the same as the Eddie China Intercontinental title thing with uh they had a they had like a, a tag team match against Tristratus and Tristratus and Valvinus, I want to say, at a pay-per-view where the IC title was on the line. But they actually spent weeks building up to it, and people were anticipating it. This title match happened last year, I mean last week, without any build at all. And then we had these co-champions. Then the next week, they're figuring out that, oh, Daphne's going to win. Like, why, if Vince Russo one day couldn't stop chuckling because a girl was going to win a boy's title, and oh my goodness, isn't that hilarious— 
why didn't we at least build to it so that people were anticipating the payoff? Why didn't the challenge get offered last week? We do some sort of crazy segment here this week, and then we have the match at the pay-per-view. I, d- I just I don't get why we're rushing to really unsatisfying payoffs. <laughs> like if you're if, if the payoff is this crazy thing that makes people jaw drop, like let them anticipate it a little bit here. It just it didn't feel it didn't feel like uh, that was something that was pre- it. It felt like it was written the the night before the day of. <laughs> like it seems like they've. Well, I mean, I think we all know that they've jumped the shark. So uh, they're just like pulling out anything that they can to get attention. And like this was, oh, how how silly and fun would this be? Just like you said. Listen, bro. What <laughs> would be crazier than a broad winning a title for a dude? I mean, come on, it, it writes itself, bro. Oh, I didn't know that you guys had backstage footage. <laughs> <laughs> and here's the craziest thing. This isn't even the first time Vince Russo has had a woman win the cruiserweight title <laughs> from a man by mistake who she's also romantically involved with. He did this like five months ago with Medusa and Evan Courageous. I mean, if it works, why, why, why change it? <laughs> backstage, the kid camp spies on Tori giving Horace Hogan a massage. It should be noted that this was an empty hallway and there was zero chance these two didn't know that they were being watched. (laughs) The announcers then go real hard on all the handjob jokes. Now, if I'm not mistaken here, we've established that Kid Cam is always Billy Kidman. So is this now some weird fucking voyeuristic thing where he enjoys taping his girlfriend give other men massages? Hey, hey, we're not here to kink shame. If that's what he's into. <laughs> but that's the thing. But later we are being shown that he is a he, he is a non-voluntary cuck, as we see later on in the show. So I have no idea what sort of games Billy Kidman's trying to play here. I mean, I bet they have fun. I think, yeah, I think this is all part of their relationship. Because as you mentioned, <laughs> Brian Mann, if... Like let, let, let's say Brian Mann that uh, you you were uh, involved with a nice young lady and for whatever reason the week before we had a match where I turned against my uncle and joined forces with you because of uh, your your lady and then the next week she decides to give me a massage why would I be out in the hallway that seems very public so yeah, I'm why thinking would I be doing that, it at work I'm thinking that Billy and 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 uh, Tori are using Horace to to you know, engage in their own fantasies right now. And, you know, we think Billy's mad, but, you know, when he's mad, that's when Billy Kidman is really passionate, Brian Mann. Well, it's, you know, when you get caught with something that you, you're not supposed to be caught with, you're like, oh, that's so gross. I agree. I am not into that thing at all. <laughs> I agree with everybody. <laughs> <laughs> like somebody takes, like, pee into your browser, and you're like, don't, 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 don't. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't looking at that on Red Suit. That was Horace Hogan coming over to my house that was doing that. <laughs> Storyline, just go with it. <laughs> Outside the building, Booker T is shown leaving, but telling the MIA to stay tuned next week. We then see Ralphus and Norman Smiley washing cars for a dollar. <laughs> I guess they, they made enough money last week selling popcorn to afford tickets to come to Grand Rapids, yeah. Michigan. Oh, this story. Save this travel money, guys. This story makes no sense. Like, A, did you run through all of your money 
you know, in, in the two weeks you've been fired, you know, you didn't save anything. You were living check to check, Norman Smiley and Ralphus. Uh, the other thing, yeah, you're, you're really, you really, that, that's a terrible business plan. You know, you, all those cars there, you figure if, if you want to, you know, incentivize the, the consumer base by offering low prices, maybe start at five bucks. You know, why, why go all the way down to a dollar? Like, do you know, do you understand Norman Smiley, how much manual labor you will have to do just in order to get a plane ticket back home? Also, this is the worst way for a wrestler to try to make money at a wrestling show. If you live in the New York area like I do, you will see Bob Backlund in the lobby of every WWF show making $20 to take pictures with people. Why is Norman not offering like autographs for a dollar or something like that? Or like $5. I feel like he'd be making yeah. a lot more money on merch. I mean, true, this was before pro wrestling tees. So actually, maybe this is just how guys would make money. They would go to the arena and they would uh, offer car washes. Yeah, Virgil just sitting there like, man, you guys are doing it wrong. Maybe this is just an extension of like, maybe we're seeing WCW wrong. It's just a huge kink family. And he's just a sub and he likes it. the cars. I see it now. I get it. I like it more. Kidman storms into Bischoff's locker room, pissed that Eric is lending out his girlfriend. Billy shoves the cat, and Bischoff says that Horace is right around the corner. Eric then blames Billy for having such an attractive girlfriend, and he should have expected this. Billy Cuckman then finds Tori and says he's going to kick Horace's ass and that she has to be the referee. Bischoff then attacks a passing referee and gives Tori his shirt. Kidman and Horace then begin brawling towards the ring, and this will lead to a match, but let's stop here and talk about all the capital P problematic shit that just happened in that segment I described. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'll, let, I'll let you uh, take first swipe at, at this uh, nonsense, Rachel. <laughs> oh, me? Oh, no. Oh, no, I don't want to. I hate it. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to listen to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, there's a I Okay, let's just rank it. What what's the most problematic? I mean, let's say <laughs> least problematic. Coming in at number 5. Eric Bischoff attacking one of his one of his employees as they casually walk by and stripping them. Oh, well, yeah, stripping them. I think you buried the lead there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel uh. number number 4 is Bischoff blaming Kidman for dating an attractive woman. <laughs> And that he should have expected her to do something like this because all attractive women uh, are prone to this sort of behavior. Can't control their boobs. <laughs> I don't know if I don't know if men know this, but boobs actually they whisper to you. They're like destroy the mind. Make sure they <laughs> make sure to sleep with their friends. It's crazy. We have to just tell it every day. Just shut up, boobs, please. <laughs> what What do you think, Nate? What What would you say was the number three most problematic thing in this segment? Um. I I might have to go with and again these are these rankings are fluid. Uh, Billy Kidman, who is seemingly upset? Question mark because I still I'm still kind of going with my theory earlier that this is all you know just this could be some role time. playing. Yeah, this is just role play for the Kidmans. Uh, you know, forcing Tory to be the referee in this match. Like, well, well, where where did that come from, Billy? He, it also seemed like he was physically threatening her as well. He was getting in her face. So I'll say think, that's number two. I think number one has to be, I, what was the line that pointed out, that came out to me was, what, they said, uh, who cares? She's hot and she can count. That's enough. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> it's 
wow. I kept thinking the entire time. I could not even concentrate on it. The only thing I kept thinking is like, you know what? She's been around you guys for a really long time. And I bet at this point, she probably knows a thing or two about wrestling. Why don't you give her due diligence? Make her. She's a, she's a ref. Fine. I bet she can actually call the match. <laughs> she can do it. Also, honorable mention problematic for uh, teasing a Horace Hogan match. I think that might have been my most problematic <laughs> part of the entire thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think that might be the most egregious thing these last few weeks, Brian, man, is I thought in 2017 that I was in a safe space, that I, I would never have to view a Horace Hogan <laughs> match ever again. But no, lo and behold, these past two weeks he has come back with a vengeance. So Horace and Kidman brawled down the rampway, and Tori and Bischoff are following them. Kidman hits a bulldog on the floor as Bischoff gets on commentary to say that Kidman and Hulk Hogan's pay-per-view match will also have a special guest referee, but it's a surprise. Mm. In the ring, Horace ducks a clothesline, and then Kidman hits a dropkick. Kidman does the Hulk Hogan ear thing to the fans, and then goes running into an elbow by Horace. Hogan then throws a table into the ring and clotheslines Kidman. Madden asks if the winner will get Tory, but Bischoff, to his credit, actually attacks Madden for having such a sexist mindset. <laughs> F-U-N-B Hulk Hogan then walks down for a closer look. Horace is set up on the table, and Kidman goes to the top rope, but Hogan crotches him and then hurls him off the top and through Horace. Hulk Hogan then puts Kidman on top of Horace before standing on both of them and forcing Tori Wilson to count the one, two, three. So somehow Hulk Hogan won a match he wasn't even in. <laughs> Hulk Hogan gets on the mic and promises to kick Kidman's ass regardless of the referee at the Great American Bash. Hulkster also reminds us that he will be getting a world title shot if he beats Kidman. As much as I hated everything that happened in the back, I might have hated this more. There was not a single positive thing I could say about any of the shit that happened in this segment. Everything yeah. was problematic and nothing made sense. It was like a, it was a terrible world to live in for those 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the one thing you wanted to see, like at least for me, the one thing that I was actually intrigued about and actually you know, kind of got me out of my seat this whole entire time was the prospect of Billy Kidman doing a 450 through a table. And we didn't even get that. So back at the Flair funeral, Russo gives David the watch he stole from his dad because it should stay in this because it should stay in the family. David says he doesn't want his wrist to turn green and throws it into the casket. Elsewhere, Terry Taylor asks Reed if he's all right with everything, and Reed says that he is. Back outside to Ralphus and Norman Smiley's car wash. Tony explains that these two need money to buy food because they're living in a homeless shelter. It hasn't even been the first of the month. How are these guys kicked out of their houses already? And I, I'm no expert. You know, I, full disclosure, folks, I'm no expert in the uh, homeless shelter uh, industry. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty I'm pretty sure you just can't, like, travel from town to town and just stay in a homeless shelter, like, your first day there. I, I think there, there's got to be some type of protocol for the homeless shelter. And there's, there's certainly more deserving people in Grand Rapids that have been homeless for a longer time, that should be ahead of the line uh, in front of Norman and Ralphus. And they're super nefarious looking, too. I mean, (laughs) those are a couple drifters you don't want to let in your front door. (laughs) This is when the filthy animals roll up in their low rider. 
the MIA are then shown in the back making fun of the filthy animal's car. I mean, boy, these guys really got over their friend Booker T getting fired really fucking quickly. <laughs> well, pranks are to be had. You gotta, gotta do pranks. <laughs> so the filthy animals get out of their car and uh, ask Ralphus and Smiley to, to wash it for them. So great use of all of our talent all around. Glad you guys flew to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to make a buck. Back in the arena, Terry Funk comes out in a rented tux for his big announcement. His daughter Brandy is even at ringside. Funk says that tonight's announcement is long overdue. In the back, Bischoff sends the new blood to just run down to the ring and wrap this thing up right away. Funk runs down the list of family members that he called this week and told them to watch tonight's episode of Nitro. Presumably meaning he was telling them not to watch Nitro every other week this year. (laughs) Shane Douglas comes out with the whole new blood. Shane says that this is a live show and he just needs to make his damn announcement already. Funk then reveals his big announcement. It's a boy. He's gonna be a grandpa. So, was this what that press conference was about earlier today? Was just him announcing that his daughter was expecting? That's excessive. (laughs) That's really excessive, but hey. Shane says that he's waiting for Funk to retire. Funk agrees that grandpas shouldn't be wrestling and they should be in rocking t- they should be in rocking chairs. Funk announces that he's going to retire on June 1st. From zero zero reaction from the crowd, there's no pain, there's no anguish for this. Funk then reveals that he's going to retire June 1st, 2001 because Brad Siegel has extended his contract. Little did Funk realize this company would retire before June 1st, 2001. <laughs> Funk says that Shane is going to have to look at his wrinkled ass for another year. The New Blood then runs to the ring and beats down on Funk. Shane gives Funk a pile driver to a chair, prompting Funk's daughter to run into the ring. She begs Shane to stop, but, De- but Douglas just pushes her in the corner. Funk then takes another pile driver, and Shane covers Terry as Candido counts a three. The New Blood celebrates the beatdown with Shane holding the hardcore title as Brandy Funk cries over her father. Did you notice how good she was? She was a good, she was a good actor. She was raised in a pro wrestling family. She was, yeah, she, she sold this. And I got to say, this might've been the best segment on the entire show. Like as the, as is the par with Russo shows, it felt rushed. They clearly didn't run through it ahead of time. It felt a little sloppy, but I got to say the concept and the idea behind the segment, not bad. Yeah. My, my immediate reaction after this segment concluded, I, my first thought was, huh? That wasn't that wasn't the worst thing I've seen on this program during our during our time doing this show. Uh and then the second thing, yes, you know, talking about Brandy. Uh what a fine girl, what a good wife you would be. Uh Brandy was really, really good here. And I in a way it felt wasted on this segment. In a way it felt wasted on this Terry Funk that we've seen this year, Brian Mann, because this was the most interesting he's been. Since since he was the commissioner, maybe even maybe even more interesting. I think than more when he was interesting. The commissioner, but it like you've you've beaten me down on Terry Funk. Like as a Terry Funk fan, I have not liked so much of this year that even when he said, you know, I'm gonna retire June first, two thousand one, the reaction they wanted me to have was, yay, Terry Funk. The reaction I actually had, Brian Mann, was, why Terry Funk? Why why would you do this to yourself? We, we you know we don't need this. Uh, considering what you've done this year and what the company has done to you this year. Uh, but if we're looking at this as an isolated segment of pro wrestling TV, 
I thought everybody did their part. Shane Douglas probably had one of his best segments this year, and, and, and Terry Funk, when he's motivated, is always good on the mic. I actually thought that Shane was so good, and we'll touch on this later. Why are we not just entering into a Terry Funk-Shane Douglas feud? Mm. Like, we teased it here, but that's not what Shane Douglas is going to be doing. Yeah, but Funk did not look good when he was fighting. Like, he did not... Mm. A full feud, I think, is a little intense for him. Well, he is the hardcore champion right now, and they have him wrestling every week, so we're we're doing what we can. Oh my god, really? Oh, wow. See, I watched (laughs) three, and I was like, yeah, yeah, he's fighting a lot. He does not look that good. Okay. All right, cool. No, that's fine. Good for him. Yeah, we've had plenty of bad Terry Funk matches, including one where he used a raw chicken as a weapon uh, this year. So, yeah, this on, on the Terry Funk scale, Rachel, this is this is probably peak funk. Uh, oh, this this is the the best we've seen of this man this year. Wow, I guess I guess I gotta I guess I gotta get with it. Gotta gotta watch more. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, In the parking lot, Norman and Ralphus are cleaning the filthy animal's lowrider. While Captain Erection speaks to Norman, Major Guns flirts with Ralphus to distract him. This allows Major Stash to swap his bucket of water out with a mystery liquid. We then get a clip from Mike Tanay's interview with Chris Canyon on the past week's episode of Thunder. Canyon has a medical brace around his head, and he admits that he may never walk again after Mike Awesome threw him off the cage at Super Brawl. Back in the arena, Mike Awesome comes out mocking Canyon in a wheelchair with head with the exact same headgear that Canyon just had. My name just happens to be Ironsides Chris Canyon. And, oh my neck. And, and at the last pay-per-view, Mike Awesome, he threw me off the top of that triple-tier cage. And he ended my career. The Walden makes his way down to the ring for the first and only ever tables versus ambulance match. (laughs) No, I have no idea how you win a tables versus ambulance match, and the announcers didn't either. Why the fuck was this just not called a tables match, guys? (laughs) So from what I understand from commentary is that... uh, the idea is that you go through a table and then into an ambulance, but isn't it a table then ambulance match then? Not a table. Very confusing. Also, I'm not familiar with this world uh, uh, anymore. So I didn't know if that was a shoot. I didn't know if I, that was a work. I didn't know if that guy was actually ever going to walk again. I was very concerned. I will give Chris Canyon credit. I, I thought that interview segment was done really well. Oh, it was, oh, okay. All right, yeah, that was done great. I really believed him. Yeah, thankfully, Chris Canyon was not at all hurt. This is all just an angle. <laughs> oh, I'm so relieved. <laughs> awesome pitches the headgear and goes after the wall. The wall executes a big boot and sends Awesome into the corner for the 10 punches. Awesome attempts an awesome bomb, but the wall wiggles out. The wall then charges forward, but Awesome backdrops him over the top rope, sending the wall flying through a table. The bell rings, so I guess that's how you win an ambulance versus tables match. (laughs) The wall gets right back up and pounds on Awesome, proving that the finish meant nothing. They brawl up the entranceway before Shane Douglas runs out and hits the wall with a lead pipe. 
They bring the wall into the back and into an ambulance. However, DDP emerges from the back of the ambulance with a chair. He knocks both Awesome and Shane down with it. DDP then sends Awesome into the ambulance, which drives away for some fucking reason. The wall (laughs) continues to brawl with Shane Douglas before choking him out. Again, I have no idea why this was a match. I have no idea why there was a finish. A bell rang. It didn't matter. I'm a fan of chaos. I love chaos. Um, so that was fun. Uh, feeling like the world was ending. Super fun. But yeah, no, I didn't understand what was happening the entire time. Nobody understood what was happening. I feel like even the people who were doing it were just going through motions. Like there was no story. There was nothing to follow. Bells rang. It didn't mean anything. It truly was like an art house film. (laughs) Just didn't mean anything. (laughs) And in regards to Shane, he's already moving on to, like, he just did the thing with Funk, but that's not his program. Here he is with The Wall. Yeah, that was my biggest takeaway from this segment. You know, it's it's like if you go to a, if you go to a comedy show or, or go to a concert and the comedian of the band, like, ends on a flourish. And you're like, man, this, this guy or girl is really funny. Or, man, that band was really cool. But then they come back with their with their, uh, their their encore, if you will, and it's not really that good, and you're wondering why they decided to come back, and it just leaves you feeling sour for the rest of the night. That's how I felt after this, because the last segment with Shane and Funk, I, I really enjoyed. You know, it was, might be one of the best things about this week's episode, but then to have him come back and engage in, not only engage in this meaningless beat down to the wall, but to, to then end up getting choked out and, and made to look like a chump, I, I was like, come on, Shane Douglas. This isn't the franchise that I know. (laughs) You're better than this, man. We then cut to an obviously pre-taped segment as the New Blood are shown bringing the fake flare casket to the ring. I say obviously pre-taped because both Mike Awesome and Shane Douglas are shown carrying the casket despite being left for dead 10 seconds earlier. (laughs) I I see. And again, I... Thought I was seeing things, Brian, man, and I thought, I don't know if it was space madness up here on the satellite, or I didn't know if it was, you know, Vince Russo finally, you know, insidiously working his way into my brain and, and deteriorating it from the inside out. But I was like, wait a minute, those guys just got beat up, didn't they? They they sure, they, they no-sold that beat down like the wall no-sold going through a table in that tables versus ambulance match. I guess that's where the ambulance took Mike Awesome, was, st- was straight to a wardrobe change. <laughs> Oh, that would make a lot of sense. Yeah, don't you, like, I get it. I get it now. Nothing matters. I've submitted to it. It's oh, like yeah, no, no, that's the first thing that, that Nate and I had to figure out was nothing matters on the show whatsoever. Insane. Absolutely insane. <laughs> Back at the car wash, Ralphus pours his bucket of soap on the car. However, it's clearly white paint, but Ralphus and Norman just don't think anything of it and continue to rub it on the vehicle. <laughs> <laughs> organ music fills the arena and out comes Russo and the new blood while the casket waits at ringside Russo eulogizes Flair by saying that they're here to celebrate the death of his career Russo shows footage of Flair collapsing on Thunder Russo says that it's all the fans fault that Flair got hurt because they made Rick think that he could still compete at his age Russo says the only bad thing is that David Flair won't get to retire his father Vince then gives the World Heavyweight title to Jeff Jarrett and declares him the champion again. So, in less than three weeks, Jeff Jarrett has become a three-time world champion. (laughs) Jeff takes the mic and says that once again, he's proving that he's the chosen one. 
We can't let our World Heavyweight Champion talk for too long. So Russo gets the mic back and says that he's going to show some heart and do the right thing and bury Flair's Rolex with his career. He then goes to throw the watch into the casket, but the magic man Oz himself, Kevin Nash, pops out of the casket and chokes Russo. Nash then gets in the ring, hits a big boot on David Flair, followed by Wanda Jarrett. Nash then exit the ring with the World Heavyweight title. This segment by the stands at the time wasn't too bad. It was a little rushed, a little short. But guys, Kevin Nash isn't a prick who stands up his, his friends. He's a creepo who hangs out in caskets all afternoon. <laughs> I love that. I love Kevin Nash. I will. I yes and to everything he does. Such a fan. <laughs> Are you going to yes and the sexual harassment he commits later on an interviewer? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing about Nash. Like, you can't have, like, I agree. Recently, like, Nash is like, we've had woke Kevin Nash on Twitter, and everyone's been in love with him. But then you watch these old 2000 episodes, and the way he's treating his female coworkers is not super up. So, Kevin Nash, just pick a lane. Let us celebrate you, man. <laughs> yeah, you know, I uh, maybe it was consensual. Maybe they talked about it beforehand. <laughs> well, let's say that. How He's great. Kevin Nash, he asked. Kevin Nash, great for now. Great. Once we get to the interview segment later, mm, we'll debate it. <laughs> uh, see, Brian, I, I knew, you know, being a, a longtime viewer of, of this wonderful thing called professional wrestling that – you know, you don't you don't just bring out a casket and not do something with it. You know, it's it's Chekhov's casket, I believe, is the law. Uh, and so I knew somebody was going to pop out, but I like I didn't know if Ric Flair was in the casket or Arn was in the casket. I didn't know who was in the casket. So when Nash popped out, there was this immediate visceral reaction of, "Oh, it's Kevin Nash, cool." Followed immediately by, "Come on, man!" Like really, Kevin Nash? Like every week he finds the the maximum way to do the least amount of actual work. And this yeah. week he laid in the casket and when it was his time, he popped out and choked out Vince Russo. I'm like, you know what? Keep getting those checks, Kevin Nash. Find a way to work smarter, not harder. It's almost <laughs> like they were running the segment down with Nash. Like, okay, so we're going to do this funeral. And then you run out and you attack everybody. And he's like, I mean, could we do it so I don't have to walk down the ramp? Like maybe I'm already in the casket. Could we just do that, guys? Sure, Nash. What the fuck? But he really sells it. He's like, ooh, it's spooky. (laughs) (laughs) We then go backstage for the debut of our brand new backstage announcer, Pamela Palshuk. She was formerly one of the NWO biddies, and she has now been moved into an interview position. Now, how did WCW introduce this new member of the broadcast team? By having Vince Russo run up and yell, who are you? I've never seen anyone. Who are you? Russo then cuts a promo on Nash, telling Big Sexy that he has 45 minutes to give the belt back, and he'll give him a no-holds-barred match against Jarrett for the title. So, this is so fucking good. Is Jarrett the champion, or is the title vacant? Mm. <laughs> oh, wow. Brian man. I, I just discovered something that made me really, really happy, and it has very little to do with this actual segment what's that because you brought up you brought up pamela paul shot and i always remembered liking her and then like she's one of those whatever happened to those people are you gonna drop the bombshell of who she's married to yes i was gonna bring that up later yeah if you want to bring it up you can oh so great pamela paul shock married the tv's roger lodge people what 
<laughs> yeah. They were dating at this time. They got married in 2003. Well, okay. <laughs> oh, I wonder if she's proud of this. They got three kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's something to be proud of. She was, she was like in a successful, like she was in a fine relationship. She took this modeling gig. I think it's starting to snowball out of control, but she's like, fuck it. I'm getting paychecks. <laughs> like she married the host of Blind Date. Like that's, that's pretty, that's pretty great. Good for you, Pamela. U.S. champion Scott Steiner then comes out with his freaks who are dressed in Michigan cheerleader outfits. Steiner says it's great to be back in Michigan before talking about his dick. Steiner says that all his friends told him that he had a bad temper and one day he'd end up in a jail. Steiner says he's been in a cell before and he always survived. This is all a setup for the debut of the Asylum, a circular cage designed to fit inside of the ring. This is like a poor man's UFC cage. This was, this was a time when everyone was trying to... to Big up the MMA craze that was going on. They had the Lions Den in WWF, and this was the WCW attempt. <laughs> so we're debuting a brand new gimmick here, guys. Really got to get this thing over. So he calls out Tank Abbott and his brother Rick. Rick makes his way down to the ring as the asylum is being lowered. The brothers do some high-impact brawling as the cage falls around them. Rick hits some hard punches on Scott. Scott blocks a throw into the cage and then throws Rick into it repeatedly. Scott lands a belly-to-belly and locks in the Steiner recliner. Just then, Goldberg's music hits. The crowd goes crazy. They start chanting Goldberg. But then we cut backstage to show Tank Abbott doing his mock entrance with R&B security. The crowd pops huge before realizing that it's just Tank Abbott. Tank comes out. They don't bother booing. They just go silent. Tank attempts to break into the cage with a pair of bolt cutters, but can't get in. So instead, Tank knocks out the referee at ringside and pushes a button, causing the cage to rise up. Tank and Rick then attack Scott, making this a no contest, instantly killing any drawing power this new gimmick might have had. Nash then shuffles his way down the ring, nails both Tank and Rick with the world title, and they just stand tall. We then cut backstage where Jarrett is talking to Russo, who has changed into a New York Yankees shirt. <laughs> what what again what the fuck was i supposed to walk away from this segment with guys they spent money making this cage they didn't just find it in the trash they spent money this is a new gimmick they've got to get it over and this is what we did it w- could we not have just lowered the cage around scott and have him cut a promo about it there was no presentation either it was just like I like blinked and it was there. There was no, there was no buildup or anticipation. It looked janky. It was just like a kid play toy. It was so bad to look at and so sad. Like just see these big <laughs> men in there trying to sell this thing that's just so embarrassing. <laughs> and if you wanted, to, like, like if you wanted to get this across, I agree. Like the presentation is one thing, but also setting up this match and hey guys somebody you know on the on the creative team should have realized we've got the good fortune of doing this episode of nitro in michigan which is the home of rick and scott steiner if you really wanted to get this across you know this this feud and rick is hating his brother and scott needs to get revenge uh, on what rick and tank did to him the week before this could have been a story uh, a show long build to this match I'm not saying it should have been the main event, but damn it, it could have been, you know, something that that 
was one of your big matches here on the show instead of this throwaway thing. But instead of investing in this brotherly feud, we had to take time out later on in the show to invest in a brotherly feud that nobody gave a damn about, where I think here, particularly in Michigan with Rick and Scott, you could have had some compelling TV, but they decided to kind of go for the the, the quick fix, I think. And there's, there's a story there. You can say, that, you know, my brother betrayed me. He turned his back on me. And he's got this Tank Abbott always jumping me from behind. I want you one-on-one. Highlight the cage. Bring it down. And he, honestly, Scott just cutting a promo in this cage revealing what it was would have been so much more effective. If you remember yeah. when they debuted the Elimination Chamber, Eric Bischoff cut like an mm. eight-minute promo highlighting what it was, what, what the pods were, getting over the, the steel mesh. Can you imagine if the very first time like the Hell in the Cell was on Raw – they just fucking like lowered it around the ring and then like they tried to do bolt cutters and they raised it and like it was just a total <laughs> fucking afterthought like oh hey i got this thing up here uh it's a big cage it surrounds the ring and like jerry lawler's like i i, I heard it's called the hell in a cell and that was the debut of like this <laughs> massive like this could have been a huge thing for them but what can, i mean they did the exact same thing last week nate with the house of pain it was just something yeah. that was there and was never explained and this could have been an actual drawing gimmick for them I feel like they couldn't decide between the story and the gimmick. Like they couldn't decide between what they wanted to put over the, the feud between them or the thing around them. And they just chose neither of them for some reason. <laughs> and and it, you very easily could have woven one into the other. Like this could have been instead of just some random thing that happened to be there in, in, in Michigan this week. This could have been something Scotty's had in the back of his mind. Like ever since we were kids, I've been thinking of the perfect playground of destruction and and this is what i've come up with rick and you and me are gonna fight in our hometown and we're gonna settle it once and for all and 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 it's gonna be you know give it a give it a better name than the name they gave it you know maybe the the uh let's see instead of the asylum how about the steiner sank the steiner sanctuary Ooh, ooh. Yeah. Like and then, then, yeah, then you can have Tony Schiavone. Folks, don't go anywhere because coming up at the end of the night, the Steiner Sanctuary, Rick and Scott, it's going to be great. But instead, we got this week segment with Tank Abbott, and, and, and ultimately, it's forgettable by the time the show goes off the air. And that's just what it is that's so disappointing is that it's just lazy storytelling. Like, if they had given it just as much thought as you just gave it. Like, imagine how much better that would have been if they weren't just like, ah, just put a cage around him, I guess. <laughs> we go backstage for another interview segment. This was the the funniest start to it. <laughs> it's small, but we just cut to Pamela Polishit completely alone, who looks dead in the camera and says, I'm waiting for Kevin Nash. <laughs> like, uh, they couldn't just start with Nash right there. <laughs> that was insane. What was that about? Was she okay? Was it, did something go I think wrong? It's just, I think it's just <laughs> Nash being a prick. To be fair. Oh. So Kevin Nash approaches Pamela Polshik and asks who she is. Before Pamela can even explain, Nash asks if she's single. Polshik, ever the professional, just asks him to answer the question. Nash then challenges Jarrett to a match tonight for the world title, so I guess he missed the segment where the match was already made. As he leaves, Nash grabs Paula, turns her around so he can look at her ass, if you were curious how workplace sexual harassment looks. Come on, like, I guess it was 2000, this shit was cool, but it's real difficult to watch now. I don't know if it was cool. 
Yeah, he, it's not like, uh, you know, he's Don Draper or something. Like, he's, this is, you know, it's 17 years ago, but it's still, quote, unquote, modern society. Oh, my God. Man. Like, even... Nate, yes. I would love, like, a, a Mad Men remake where it's just wrestlers. It's Kevin Nash between the year 2000 to the year 2010 and his woke, his, his awakening throughout that entire time period. <laughs> <laughs> we just had this moment at the end of the series where he's like, maybe holding people down and being mean to women. It's not the way to live, Kevin. From now on, I'm not going to be big sexy anymore. I'm going to be big friendly. Please get a copyright for Kevin Nash, The Awakening. <laughs> I think it ends with Kevin Nash. Like, he goes to a yoga retreat. And he's, like, you know, really finding himself. And he's on the he's on the hill, like, the end of Mad Men. And then we just, we just cut to the Divas Revolution from that. Yeah. <laughs> Elsewhere, Terry... Elsewhere, Terry Taylor is again shown talking to Reed Flair. I'm so thankful this segment didn't end like the last one with Nash and Paul Shook. Up next is Chuck Palumbo being carried to a match by DDP. Uh, Before the match, Palumbo flexes against DDP, who just punches Chuck in the fucking face. (laughs) DDP goes to shoulder block Palumbo, blocks a hip toss, then delivers a belly-to-belly for a two-count. This was a very impressive job from DDP, who's like doing all the work. He blocks an Irish whip and nails a sit and nails a sit down power bomb. Palumbo low blows DDP to get the advantage. Palumbo then calls Liz into the ring, who is at ringside, but she slaps Palumbo, which allows DDP to score a two count off a roll up. Kimberly then comes out and just smacks the shit out of Liz with a bat. Mike Awesome then runs through the crowd, so I guess he got out of the ambulance somehow. He's got his protective headgear back on, and he nails DDP with it. Palumbo then locks on the torture rack for the win. The total package then runs out to check on Liz, and Lex can't decide if he should help DDP or attend to Liz. Eventually, though, Lex runs to DDP's aid, but Kimberly grabs his foot when he tries to grab when he tries to get in the ring. This allows Palumbo to hit Lex in the face, the Lex flexor legitimately busting him open. Luger just crumbles to the floor and paramedics rush to his aid right away. I think he, I, not I think, he did, he legitimately like cracked his skull here. Oof. Yeah. That. Yeah, that, that was the thing that, that stood, stood out to me, Brian, man. Like, this, this match is, is simply forgettable. It was a, a testament to the skill of one Diamond Dallas Page, but that shot with the Lex Flexler, I'm like, oh, like, why Why would you trust Chuck Palumbo with this? Has anything Chuck Palumbo's done since we've seen him on his program, Brian Mann, shown, shown us that he has the timing to pull something like this off? <laughs> and a match like this is just the perfect Vince Russo segment because Vince Russo, to his credit, is not a lazy guy. But he spends so much time overthinking segments that just the basic, the basic logic just falls apart. Why, why do we have these guys... We have these guys in like five segments to the point that we don't remember anything they did rather than just put them in one segment. Why was Mike Awesome in a segment, then being driven off in an ambulance, then showing back up? Why was DDP in that thing earlier? To It's this weird thing where you have to be buried in one segment and get over in another. It's the weirdest thing the way they book these guys. Yeah, I didn't even – it felt like I would – it felt like three lifetimes – me watching this one episode because you're right. I didn't even put it together. Like it's, I, I 
fully know that they're the same people, but it felt like completely different shows I was watching. Every segment was just a vignette. Maybe if we think of it more as a variety mm. hour, then it's then it makes sense. Well, I think I think Rachel may be on to something, Brian Man, but I'm gonna expand on the variety hour aspect. And I'm gonna say it right now, people. You you know, mark this, check the timestamp, put it down for posterity. <laughs> Vince Russo is the inventor of the binge watch. Because each of these episodes of Nitro is not one single episode. But three episodes packed into one night. And so we saw Mike Awesome three times. It wasn't on the same night. It was three separate episodes of Monday Nitro. <laughs> Vince Russo is a genius. You're not wrong. I did feel like I watched three episodes. <laughs> Outside, Lex is being loaded into an ambulance, holding a bloody rag to his face. Guys, this was gross. Did we have to shoot a vignette? Could we not just take him to the hospital? Like, I think DDP was actually out of character here, just yelling at them to put him in the ambulance. Oh, poor, poor Lex. <laughs> it was unnecessary, but it was there. So, hey, I accepted it. <laughs> Back out in the arena, out comes Terry Taylor and Reed Flair. Oh, oh, oh time out, time out, time out, time out, time out. Before we get to, to the main event of the show, Brian, man, I did want to send. I did want to uh, send a shout out to who I thought was the best performer of the the previous segment, and on these on these last few episodes, I I think she's she's been a standout, and that is Kimberly Page. Like in in this heel persona, I, I've dug some of the work that she's done. Oh no, no, she feels very natural. Uh, it's it's a fresh coat of paint for this character. I kind of just wish they I, I, there's no focus. It's just all over the place. Like just give her some shit to do. Thankfully, I think maybe on the... There's some really good vignettes, I think, coming up on the next episode with her, if I'm not mistaken. We then go out to the arena, and here comes Terry Taylor and Reed Flair. The nervous 12-year-old Reed calls out his brother, David. (laughs) Now, I don't know how we want to critique this, because I don't want to speak ill of a preteen, but it took him about 12 tries to get through this, and Terry Taylor was whispering all of his lines to him. Nor, nor do we want to speak ill of somebody who's no longer with us. I, also, I didn't want to bring that up either. I um, will say that that spear was not bad. No, no, no. They, he wasn't, yeah, he wasn't without his uh, his strengths here. David and Daphne make their way down to the ring. Reed says that the entire family misses David and that their father needs him right now. Flair yells at Reed as Daphne sneaks behind Terry Taylor and breaks a Statue of Liberty replica on his head, knocking him out. David then pushes his brother, but Reed comes back with a low blow and a pretty shitty spear. We'll give him credit. He was 12 on a 20-year-old here. I thought it was a pretty good spear. I thought it was pretty good. (laughs) There is then a side headlock by Reed to David, who punches him in the gut and executes a figure four. However, Reed, rather than sell the figure four, make sure that his... Shirt is covering his tummy. Security runs in and breaks it up. Okay, Nate, you said this was the main event. There's a lot to dissect here. I think before we even get into the execution, we should say, was this a good idea? And I'm going to say no. (laughs) For a lot of reasons. Because there's no way... Like, why did Reed Flair get any heat on a 20-year-old at all. Like, honestly, yep. I think him putting David in a headlock was, like, Leno Hogan levels of ridiculousness. 
Oh, man, there's so much. Like, first of all, Terry Taylor as Reed's de facto guardian is just strange. Uh, because to this point, like, have we really seen any connection between Rick and Terry? Yeah, he has become his foster father. He just hangs out with old guys with blonde hair. He's like, you look like my daddy. <laughs> take me to take me to Michigan. I used to do that, too. I used to just walk up to people who looked like my parents and grab their hands. I understand. <laughs> it's comfort. Oh, but, but the other thing is, when you talk about staging a segment and letting stuff breathe, there was actually something, there was like a, a millisecond of something really good here. And that was when the two brothers were actually talking. Mm-hmm. And instead of letting that breathe for a little bit, we had to go right into the attack, and which was the worst part of this segment because then we got, you know, Daphne taking out Terry Taylor. And then, yes, your former, what, what was Flair? Was he the former hardcore champ or something like that? Uh, he was a tag champ. Former tag champ, yeah, having to sell for his 12-year-old little brother and then, you know, locking the figure four on, on little Reed and, and Reed's like, um, yeah, I don't, I'm not going along with this, buddy. Like it, if they had stuck to what was actually genuine, and this goes back to the entire feud, you know, with, with David and his father uh, in the ring. Like, if we stuck to what actually resonated with people instead of trying to go so big and so broad with this angle, I, I think it would have worked out a lot better because, you know, to me, the best part of this entire segment was David uh, or Reed, you know, like, David, the family needs you. And, and me and mom and Ashley are worried and, and dad really needs you right now. And then David just screaming at his little brother. Like, I could have used more of that and less of the actual physical interaction. And I also, I mean, apparently on the previous Thunder, they'd done something where they took out Arn Anderson. But if this had been Arn, it would have, A, yeah. felt a lot more believable. And if you'd done something where maybe... Like Daphne breaks the thing over Arn's head, and then Daphne holds back Reed and forces him to watch David uh, like beat up on Arn. Like yeah. that would have felt better. And I'm also curious, like, what was Reed attempting to achieve by calling out David here? Like, I guess he was trying to change his mind, but I don't. Uh, the low blow, maybe even the spear, but when you got to the headlock, that's where this just became. A oh, well, comedy segment. Silly. Yeah, I mean, do things that are feasible. Like, it's, it. yeah, that was just silly. But I, I understood the conceit of this. I understood why it was happening. But if nothing was going to change, that's the thing that I noticed more about, the most about this show is that nothing ever really changes. Like, even if <laughs> titles change hands, it doesn't mean anything because somebody just yeah. took a title. Like, mm. it's... Like- Everything nothing happens, happens, but nothing happens. Yeah, I'm like having an existential crisis watching this. <laughs> it's, so what you're saying is Russo booking is like a bad episode of The Simpsons where, you know, the, the, the power plant explodes and Marge and Homer break up and Bart has to go to therapy. But at the end of the episode, hey, we're, we're, we're back on the couch and nothing really mattered. Exactly. Exactly. The world just exploded, but nothing looks different. <laughs> Vampiro makes his way down to the ring with a gas can and a blowtorch as they show clips of the ring being set on fire on the past week's Thunder. It is also announced that Sting versus Vampiro will be a human torch match at the <laughs> pay-per-view. They are guaranteeing one of these men will be set on fire. <laughs> Vampiro's opponent for the evening is Hulk Hogan, which means it mm. is time for the Hogan Bump Challenge. Uh. 
Now, Rachel, what the Hogan Bump Challenge is, every week Hulk Hogan has a match, we take wagers on how many bumps we think he will take during the pro wrestling match. Now, you're the guest, so we'll let you go first. How many bumps do you think Hulk Hogan will take during this professional wrestling match? Um, educated guess. I'm going to go with a three. Okay, you're going to say three. Okay, he is, okay. He's a professional wrestler. That is part of his job. Nate, what do you think? <laughs> I see someone's played the home get home version of the HBC. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, he's in there against Vampiro, uh, who's a tall guy, but he's not necessarily a big guy. You know, he's no Mike Awesome. Uh, plus, you know, Hogan's had a Hogan's had a busy night already. You know, coming out during that Kidman segment earlier, he's probably tired. Wants to get to the buffet or the hotel bar. I'm gonna say, good old Terry takes one bump. Let's do this is one versus three. I think we're playing. We got some strong contenders here. So Vampiro attacks from the start and hits a spin kick. Vampiro then sends Hogan to the outside and these two brawl around the ring. This is when Hogan decided that he was done selling and got in full speed mode to the Hulkster special. He goes back with punches, a chair shot. They go in the ring. Hogan starts whipping him with his belt. He's just making a total joke out of Vampiro. As Tony says, Hulk has been doing this for years. Hogan gets the big boot, the leg drop. He goes for the pin, but decides he isn't finished yet. What a baby face. He then threatens the referee because he's a total prick. The ref is checking on Vampiro, allowing Billy Kidman to run down and hit Hogan with the blowtorch. But the Hulkster rolls forward onto his stomach, not taking a bump off of this. (laughs) Billy then puts Vampiro onto Hulkster, and Vampiro is your winner. The announcers pretend as if this meant anything before Sting runs down and attacks Vampiro. The crow is shown as Hulk and Sting then take turns, whipping Vampiro further Hulk Hogan took exactly zero bumps. No, no. But the wow. announcers acted as though Vampiro had achieved something. I watched this and I'm I'm amazed by that. <laughs> wow, what a what a man. This, this, this going into this match was super pro- problematic for me because I'm a Lucha Underground girl. Yeah, and like. I don't know if you know what's been going on in AAA right now with Vampiro, but mm-hmm. a lot of he's been very messy. And <laughs> watching him like in his prime, quote unquote, and then watching Hogan, just knowing him in twenty, it's hard with twenty seventeen goggles. It's hard to watch this. <laughs> Nate, this might have been the worst example of Hulk Hogan this entire year. He gave Vampiro nothing. We're trying to get this guy over. And this was a dude who, if, if I remember correctly, the final Kevin Sullivan Raw, uh, the final Kevin Sullivan Nitro, where they it was the spring break, these two were like teaming together. He was kind of giving him a little bit of a rub. And for him to give, he gave this guy absolutely nothing. Yeah, I, I wasn't a fan at all of this match. I, I don't even know why we had this match. It, it felt like we're switching dance partners before the dance was over. Yeah, it completely was out of nowhere. I feel like they were just like, oh, now uh, you need something big. I guess here's this. It it was it was like a scheduled. It, well, I mean, I guess it was a main event to me because I know who Vampiro is. But 
I don't know. It, it was very strange and out of place, and I hate Hogan. I hate watching him. It is obnoxious. Just you know, after you you talk about wrestling for long enough, you're wrestling adjacent for long enough. You get to know wrestlers, and then when you see somebody like that in the ring who is so selfish and so like unaware, like the ring unawareness and unawareness of the other person, the person across from you, is like you couldn't it's scary to be in the ring with somebody like that. Cause they don't give a shit whether you live or die. Like they're just like, I'm going to hit you with my belt because I'm here and I don't feel like getting hit today. I, you know, yeah. They were whipping him at the end of the match. They were like hitting him in the face. Like they clearly had no interest in this guy protecting yeah. him, making him look good. I mean, we kind of already did our Hogan getting over segment. Couldn't this have been a sting match and maybe Vampiro interferes in that. It just, oh, sure. if anything, yeah. Maybe you do Sting versus Chuck Palumbo and Vampiro. I mean, obviously, like, I'm not going to try to fix problems on a wrestling show 17 years ago. But <laughs> I this, this I have to say, this was probably the worst of Hulk Hogan, Nate. I can't think of, a, of, a, of an outing he's had that was worse than this episode. Yeah, and, and it, it's made doubly uh, irritating and frustrating because Sting really had nothing to do on the show. And at a time where you kind of need all hands on deck to basically bench Sting for this episode, it felt like a waste. Especially somebody who seems like the main draw. Like, if you're going to just throw spaghetti at a wall, you might as well throw the finest spaghetti you have, right? (laughs) I like that. I like that. Outside the arena, the filthy animals go to retrieve their car from Ralphus and Norman, making me wonder... Why the fuck did they come to Grand Rapids this week? Did they did they drive cross country for a dollar car wash? <laughs> oh, see now I just like the I I, I want to see the, the 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 brain trust of the filthy animals. Like Disco's like, hey guys, I, you know you're always wanting to get a good deal on washing this lowrider. Norman and Ralphus, they they've got a dollar car wash. But here's the catch: we got to drive to Grand Rapids, Michigan. <laughs> And and just Perfect. Conan and Ray just like, you know what? It's a good idea, essay. I like the idea that they're just like, well, job's a job. And like one person in the back is like, no, you're going to lose money. Wait. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> the animal's lowrider is now covered in white paint thanks to the misfits in action. The animals attack Rafa's and Norman before the MIA makes the save. Ralphus is knocked out and Rection tells Major Guns to revive him. She refuses to perform this sexual act, but the misfits then pressure her into doing it. Another example of workplace harassment. Guns gets down reluctantly to wake him up, but Ralphus sticks his tongue out and she slaps him. The announcers lose their shit because this was just so fucking funny, guys. Was well, this... if I'm going to be mad at this, we have to be mad at every 80s movie. I was gonna say they did. They basically tried to do a uh, a Sandlot bit, That's what but was. you know, in the Sandlot at least, you know, you had the the, the kid. I forget the kid's name, but he's you know he's a precocious little kid. With this, you got Ralphus, who I'm gonna be kind and say is 50 at this point, and, and a, not and a, literally a personified butt crack. Like that is yes. who he is. As a <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you're totally right. It's very different. <laughs> Very different. <laughs> well, remember in the opening segment when Bischoff said that he was going to get revenge on the MIA later in the show? 
Mm-hmm. Was this the revenge that he was going to book them in a shitty comedy segment? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, so many levels to this program, Brian. Like, why did the Filthy Animals come to this show? Why did the MIA come to this show? Why was this, like, and when you have so many segments, and not just that, when you have Chuck Palumbo having matches, when you have Daphne having matches, when you have Daphne, when you have Daphne and Crowbar thumb wrestling for the cruiserweight title, (laughs) and all Rey Mysterio is doing in the building that night is yelling at his car being painted white. I mean, we, we, we know nothing matters. It just is. It just is, Brian. <laughs> it is main event time, guys. The World Heavyweight title is on the line. Maybe it's vacant. Maybe Jarrett's the champion. I don't fucking know. Jarrett is wrestling this match in a t-shirt and jeans because he's a professional. Mm-hmm. Before the match can start, Vince Russo comes out. He attacks the referee and rings the bell. Vince Russo is now refing this match. Jarrett pounds on Nash in the corner and attempts a splash, but Nash catches him and drops him on the top rope. Sidewalk slam by Nash, who can only get a one count because Russo gives Nash a crotch chop rather than count. Nash clotheslines Jarrett out of the ring, and these two brawl around. He picks him up and drops him across the ring apron. Nash goes for a pin on the outside, but Russo rolls back in the ring and refuses to count. This is a false count anywhere match. Nash stalks Russo, allowing Jarrett to hit Nash with the title belt. Jarrett goes for the pin, but only gets a two and a half. Nash no-sells this, goes for a jackknife powerbomb, but Russo sprays Mace in his eyes. Scott Steiner then runs down and attacks Jeff Jarrett. Russo then maces Steiner, and R&B security cuffed Steiner to the ring ropes. Jarrett goes for a pin, but Nash pops up and chokes both Russo and Jarrett. He then forces Russo to count, but it's only good enough for a two. Nash then goes to the... Outside, he attacks R&B security. Nash then sets Russo up for a jackknife powerbomb on the floor, but the mysterious red liquid comes down from the ceiling and totally misses Nash. Jarrett runs down from behind, hits Nash with a guitar shot. If you can believe this, everything I just described happened in less than five minutes. Jarrett gets the pinfall. He is the new world champion. My goodness... Segment keeps going. Bischoff comes out, says that Nash hasn't seen anything yet. Russo says the crowd can bite him. Bischoff asks Jarrett how it feels to be the champion once again, and he says that, again, he has proven himself and that everyone can choke on that slap ass. Pretty much the same promo from earlier. God damn was this awful. (laughs) What I think made this segment maybe worse than all the others is that in a lot of other segments, they're sloppy, they're, they're, they're poorly executed, they're overbooked, but people are at least trying. Tammy Sitch was trying really hard to stand in her high heels. Kevin Nash here is in jeans and a t-shirt, and he's in the fucking main event, just sleepwalking. He might as well have been shuffling during this entire match. Y'all, I don't know what's wrong with me. I love him so much. What is wrong with me? <laughs> I loved him in this match? I shouldn't. I, I know. I, I understand there's every reason why I shouldn't, and I feel like I have to, like, call my mom and explain to her that I'm in love with Kevin Nash, but I really <laughs> feel like I might be. <laughs> I mean, I loved him when I was a kid. He comes across as a cool fucking guy, but when you get older, yeah, you realize what his job description is. Memory. I just can't shake the nostalgia, and I also have not been watching as much of this as you have, so... It's like, if, if when you're working at a movie theater and you're a teenager... Kevin Nash is like 
the hot older dude who's like the bad boy who shows up late and doesn't take it seriously and like doesn't really <laughs> sweep well. And you're like, oh my God, he's such a bad boy. But then when you get older, yes. if you're the manager, you're like, what a fucking prick. There's other people who have to clean up after you, guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're so right. Oh, could that be the prequel to the uh, Kevin Nash Awakening where it's like young Nash and he's like working at a movie theater before he gets his life together? Yeah, but that's the other thing, too, is that I know 2017 Nash, too, and he's kind of cool and great. I mean, I'll say 2011 Nash was a dick to work with at WWE. But yeah, 2016, oh. 2017 Nash, I don't know what happened. I, maybe it was him finally retiring and him transitioning into, you know, being an actor. And he's just, he's chill now. I think he's just around different types of people. Like, yeah. it, it, it is not to, not to you know, whatever, but it is an environment of toxic masculinity. Like it's a real <laughs> toxic environment. And I, I can't imagine not to sympathize with like people literally sexually harassing people. That's not good. And I do not condone that, but it, it has to take a toll on your psyche. Just being around that all the time. Oh God, I can't imagine. And, and getting back to this match, Brian, man, but, I have, I have, <laughs> I, you know, getting back to this match, I haven't done it in a while, brother man, but uh, I think I'm going to reach over here in my console and, and look at this big r bright red button, and I'm going to go ahead and hit it, the uh, Keenan and Kel Y button. <laughs> why? <laughs> why did why did this have to happen? The, the, the recklessness with which the world title has been booked, when, when David Arquette, seems like a high point over the past few months in, in regards to the way the world title has been booked on this show. You've got an issue. Honestly, I got to say, he might be the best world champion you've had this entire year, David Arquette. <laughs> I mean, I guess I guess Brett was good for the two weeks we had him, but David Arquette's been the most impactful world champion we've had this year. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not somebody that bashes Jeff Jarrett, but these title changes and need these reigns they're not doing anything to help jeff jarrett look like a top guy i don't i don't know i mean there's so many ways i mean i get it they wanted to have a match for the world title this night uh if i'm not mistaken uh i think kevin nash wins the title the next night on thunder <laughs> so like what what does it even matter <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> that is the end of the show guys i think we can all agree that we didn't we didn't like this uh Rachel, you got to trust me. I really don't say the word prick that often on this show, but that was just kept flowing from me as I thought about the behavior of some of the performers on this show. Oh, no, it was apt. I really appreciated it. I'm <laughs> glad that, you know, it would be so much worse if we started this and you guys were like, how great was that? <laughs> yeah. How, how disappointing we started. It's like, Nate, I got to say, this was one of the better ones we've seen. <laughs> I just had I, I would have to go into super polite mode like oh I'm glad that you feel that way <laughs> well that is actually the perfect segue because this is when we act super polite this is our silver lining segment we have to go around and say one thing that completely uh unvarnished we actually liked on this show uh Rachel what would it be for you Ooh, well I wish it weren't this but it is and I have to lean into it um just seeing Kevin Nash do the suck it thing was I, I popped for that. I, I had a little nostalgia pop and uh, made me smile when otherwise I, my frow was my, my brow was so furrowed. 
I could feel wrinkles forming and I just needed the smile and I got it. So thank you, Kevin Nash. This is a really tough one, brother man, because there was like, I I thought last week's episode was one of the worst that we've watched through this entire run, but this somehow managed to top it. Like sting didn't even give you anything to go with. No, except for a gizemic. You know what? I think the the best thing on this show had to be Brandy Funk. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard to argue against that. Yeah, that's true. I Nate, I'm going to agree with you. I think Brandy Funk might have been the best thing <laughs> on this show. I mean, give her a contract. Why not? Uh, does she, does she yeah, show I mean, up again, or is this a one and done? I think this is a one and done for Brandy. Oh, Unlike... She gave it her all. Unlike Reed Flair, who, a little bit of a tease, will be having a match on Nitro in the next month. Oh, no. Uh, uh... (laughs) But, hey, let's not... the child labor laws? (laughs) (laughs) That actually is a legitimate question, Nate. I I would question that. But, Rachel, (laughs) thank you so much for, you know, not only having this chat with us but thank you for enduring this episode we uh we can't thank every i i feel my my heart is so heavy at the end of these episodes what we ask people to go through no i really had a good time both speaking to you and diving back into the past i had a nice time and i'm glad to be back in 2017 now that we are back in 2017 let the audience know how can how can they find you if they want more rachel in their life where where are you at on the internet well um, if you need a little more Rachel, uh, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Rachel Sam Evans or Rachel Sam Vans. I guess it depends on how your brain works. Um, and uh, YouTube, I have a, two, a couple YouTube channels. Uh, Snarled is my main channel. I do some horror stuff on that. And then I do some WWE 2K17 gaming on a channel called Slaytrix with an X. <laughs> Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for being here. And to the audience, thank you for completing another experiment with us. If this is your first time listening, a full archive of the show is available at fightnetwork.com and liveaudiowrestling.com. If you have feedback for us, you can send it over to keepit2000pod at gmail.com. And if you want more of me, I am at Brian Maxman all over the internet. And while I'm big upping myself, please watch the returning TRL on Monday. We have some very fun... uh, We have some very big guests, and I don't know if they've been announced, so I can't say them here. But please tune in on Monday, 3.30 on MTV. Oh, I'm I'm hoping that uh, Maxwell is one of those announced guests so so we can revive the bubble. Please keep it strong. Don't let Maxie Gray die. (laughs) No spoiler, but uh, unfortunately, I am the only Maxwell associated with the premiere episode of the new TRL. (laughs) Oh, no. But, Nate, as always... It's up to you. Give the, give the people the good word to hold them over until we are back with our next trial. Yes, again, want to send a shout-out to the listeners for joining us once again aboard the Satellite of Hate. And a uh, shout-out to Rachel for joining us this week. Uh, if you want to hear more from me, you can check me out on Twitter in the number 8, M-O-Z-A-I-K, at Nate Mosaic. Uh, and at first I was going to go with some Macy Gray to end this show, but... Just listening to to Rachel's thoughts and how none of this really matters. I think I'm going to leave us with the wise words of Queen. So uh, take this into your week, people. So you think you can stone me and spit in my eye. So you think you can love me and leave me to die. Oh, Russo, 
Can't do this to me, Russo. I just got to get out. Just got to get right out of here. Because nothing really matters. Anyone can see. Nothing really matters. Nothing really matters on WCW Nitro.